Okay. I invite you to turn in your worship folder to our text for the morning or in your Bible to Psalm chapter 13. And uh, would you please stand with me as uh, we read God's word. Heavenly Father, how good is it to come here to your word. Uh, Father, to find emotions and, and things that we long to express and yet so often don't have the words for. We ask that you would meet us here this morning. Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to all that you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm chapter 13. How long, O Lord, to the choir master of Psalm of David. Let me just read this for us. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is God's inspired word, so please uh, be seated. Let me just tell you where we're going this morning. Uh, Three main points. The first one, life is hard. Uh, You should be able to get that pretty easily. Uh, The second one, doubts will come. And thirdly, that God is good. So first, a life is hard. Um, I wish I had as great of a reference as Jim did this morning, pulling out the Rolling Stones. That was classic. Um, In in 1986, there was another British pop rock band called It's Immaterial, and they released their debut album, which was entitled Life's Hard and Then You Die. Um, It had these great hits songs like Driving Away From Home and Ed's Funky Diner, Uh, I've not heard any of them, but I I love the title of the album. Um, You know, Ben Franklin famously, allegedly, probably didn't actually say that nothing is certain except for death and taxes. But I think that all of us would probably agree that we could add hardship onto that list. And you might be looking around thinking, well, gosh, these are a bunch of nice-looking people, and they were wearing nice-looking clothes. They probably drove nice-looking cars, and were sitting in a beautiful building and we're about to gorge ourselves on some nice looking barbecue and um, how could it be that life is so hard? You know, nobody really seems to be suffering in this room or struggling except for me, right? The, The truth of the matter is that everybody struggles, everybody suffers, it's just that some of us are better at hiding it from the rest of us than others of us. We might not walk around openly bleeding on each other, but that doesn't mean that we don't have wounds. Uh, a few months ago, you may have rem- remember that my father was ice skating uh, with some of my nieces, and, and he fell and, and went back and hit his head on the ice. And just to make sure he was okay, because he, you know nobody likes it when you're bleeding out of your head, They went to the ER, tried to get some bandages, maybe some stitches, and they they took him for a scan just in case something might be wrong. Well, of course, they found a subdural hematoma, which my um, brain surgeon friend tells me is kind of a big deal. 
you know, bleeding on the brain, it's never good. And so he wound up in the hospital for a little while. And, you know, the, this, this thing that looked like it wasn't really that bad became sort of a, a very serious thing very quickly. Um, it's been about six months. He's doing fine. Actually, in Europe right now, very jealous of my parents. But, um, you know, for a little while, things were a little bit scary. And the idea is that, that not all of our wounds are visible, Right? And often the most dangerous wounds that we have are the ones that we can't see, or the ones that no one can see. Think about addiction, or trauma, anxiety, loneliness, abuse, neglect, grief, guilt, regret. You know, how many of us in this room, how many of the people that you know in your life are walking around with these wounds every day and nobody can see it? It's not a question of if we're going to suffer in life, but it's only a question of when and to what degree. You know, sometimes we suffer for the poor choices that we make, right? Uh, Which actually seems to be the case with David here in Psalm chapter 13. And he begins with this question, how long, O Lord? And, And one commentator, Tremper Longman, points out that by asking how long instead of why, maybe shows us that David realizes that he should be receiving some punishment But he doesn't agree with the level of the punishment that the Lord has decided to allow him to experience. You know, maybe this punishment should have run its course by now. But, you know, if you've lived any time in this world, uh, you probably discovered that actions, all actions, have consequences. And sometimes those consequences are painful. You know, David asks, how much longer? And this is probably our favorite question to ask when we're in a car, right? If you've ever been in a road trip with children, are we there yet? Well, why do we ask that question? It's not because we're in pain. That's just because we're bored. Okay, David isn't bored here. He's, He's agonizing over what he's experiencing. How much longer will this last forever? Your face is hidden from me. My heart, my soul is broken. My heart is filled with sorrow all day, every day. And not only that, but my enemy is being exalted. See, David wants to know, is my suffering ever going to end? See, sometimes we suffer for our mistakes. But there are other times it doesn't appear that there's any reason that we're experiencing suffering. You might remember the story of uh, Jesus and the man that was born blind in John chapter 9. And as the disciples encounter this man, they, they come to Jesus and say, hey, which one sinned, right? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? And, the, and there's this understanding, this idea, okay, we know somebody messed up here because there's a blind man. But, but which one was it? Were, were his parents the sinners or is he the sinner? They want to know what? Who's to blame? And of course, Jesus answered them in a very startling way. He said, it's not that either of them sin, not this man or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's not as if this man had never sinned in his life or this, these people had never sinned, his parents had never sinned in their lives, but there's this idea that God allowed this to happen to him so that later on, Right? Okay, think of this idea. He's born blind. He's lived his life, his entire life blind. He's dealt with suffering and pain, and he's been forced to beg. He's on the side of the road. And why did he experience that? Well, Jesus said it so that people could see the glory of God in him. 
and in his healing. Of course, Jesus healed this man, and, and he came back and gave glory to God because of what God had done. It's not like God wasn't aware of what was happening. In fact, God allowed this to happen for a particular purpose. See, God was playing this long game knowing that he would get more glory through this man because that one day that Jesus would come along and restore his sight. See, it's the lie of the, the prosperity gospel, which we really um, identify, I think, rather quickly. You know, that, that God just wants us to be healthy and wealthy and happy. And, and the lie of the common sense gospel, which I think we far more easily fall for, um, is that if we follow all the rules, right, if we are obedient, if we play God's game, then our life will be easy and God will reward us with great blessing. Isn't that what we want? Like, don't, be honest, don't you want blessing? You would choose that, right, if you were given a choice of blessing versus hardship. And it's, it's true that in general, life is going to be better if we follow the word of God, right? That's, that's absolutely true in general. But that's not a guarantee. It's, there's no guarantee that if, we, if we're faithful that God will reward us exactly the way that we want him to. You know, God doesn't make deals with us. He doesn't say, if you do this for me, then I'll do that for you. In fact, the only guarantee that Jesus gives his followers is this. In this world, you will have what? Trouble, tribulation, affliction. Jesus guarantees difficulty. And so when life is hard, it's only natural that doubts will come. See, David doesn't just question the fairness of this punishment. You know, he he doesn't say, I I know I've not been perfect, um, but this seems unfair, don't you think? He actually starts to doubt everything about God. Listen to this. Does God forget me? Does God see me? Has God left me on my own? Does God care about me? Is God going to reward the wicked? Is God just going to do nothing and let me die in shame? Those are the questions that David is asking. Huge questions. You know, David, the man after God's own heart, wants to know, can God be trusted with my life? Where is he? Or is he even there at all? You know, some Christians are, 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 are afraid to admit that they struggle with doubts. And they become very uncomfortable or even angry, upset when people start to share their doubts and questions, the same ones that David is asking here. But, but when we read the Bible, we discover that if you're a doubter, you're actually in pretty good company. Think back to some of the characters in the Old Testament. Right, Abraham and Sarah, who doubted that God would keep his promise that they would have a child. Or David, again, this man after God's own heart, who's doubting whether or not God will deliver him. Or how about Elijah, who after watching God destroy all of the prophets of Baal in this incredible way of fire calling down from heaven. He runs off into the wilderness and he's asking God to take his life because he's so racked with grief and fear and anxiety. You think of Job or Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, all of the prophets who all want to know where is God when life is hard. In the New Testament, Jesus' mother and brothers actually think he's crazy for calling himself God. Jesus' disciples thought that they were going to drown in a boat out at sea because Jesus wasn't strong enough to stop 
the wind and the waves. Jesus' friends, Martha and Mary, question whether Jesus really loved them because instead of coming, when they called for him, when the brother was sick and dying, what did he do? He waited three more days to come to them. See, doubts don't just magically disappear when we come to faith in Jesus. If anything, Jesus seems to suggest that the closer we get to him, the the closer we follow him, the more difficult life gets. And when life gets difficult, those questions start to come. And to be honest, if, if you haven't really dealt with doubt after you've come to faith, I'm not really sure that I trust you that much. Right? What, what, are, what are you going to be like when, when life gets difficult? Where are you going to turn? Have you grown and matured? Have you tested to see whether or not this thing that you say you believe is really true? How are you going to handle life when it gets hard? Because it will. So we're not called to check our intellect at the door when we come to faith. You know, faith in Jesus isn't a call to come and stick your head in the sand and pretend like everything's fine and ignore all the problems in the world, but we're called to love and care for the world and the people that God has placed in it, which means that we will regularly groan and long for something better than what we see. And God is not afraid of our questions. In Jude chapter 1, verse 22, there's this little line that I love. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. He doesn't say belittle those who doubt, question those who doubt, accost those who doubt, or maybe fuel their doubt by wondering, asking them, you know, are you really saved? That that kind of idea. But show mercy to those who doubt because God shows mercy to those who doubt. Our final point is that, you know, when life is hard and, and doubts come, that God is still good. You know, sometimes the goodness of God is evident in the midst of our struggles and pains. Sometimes our struggles and pains are what we might call severe mercies, meaning that God allows us to experience some pain now in order that we might be saved of something greater later. You know, when you're pulled over by a police officer for driving 80 miles over the speed limit, and I'm not speaking from personal experience, just I have some friends that this has happened to them, you know, they don't do that because they're vindictive and they just want to punish you, do they? They want to get your attention because you are endangering the lives of, their, of other people and also yourself. And maybe, just maybe, that $500 ticket and the prospect of losing your license might be enough to get you to slow down. Maybe. Or, or think of that surgeon's scalpel who may have to cut through perfectly good flesh in order to reach the deeper infection and remove a deadly disease. See, sometimes the wounds that we receive are the very things that will restore us back to life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, who probably aside from Jesus, is um, probably done more for the Christian faith than any person who's ever walked the earth opens up about an affliction that he was suffering. He says that he has experienced a thorn in the flesh and a messenger of Satan. Now, some people think that this was some sort of painful ailment. Maybe it was some some kind of lingering effect of one of his persecutions or beatings or stonings that he had suffered. Maybe it was glaucoma. Maybe his sight was bad. Others argue that he had a particularly dangerous opponent, like who followed him around and just made life incredibly difficult for him all the time. Um, other people think that maybe he struggled with a kind of a mental illness or a severe depression that he just couldn't kick. 
Whatever it was, we don't know for certain, but what we do find out is that, is that Paul did not want to experience this. And so he writes about this in, in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, three times I pleaded with the, with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, three times Paul pleaded with God to remove this painful hardship from his life. And three times, God said what? No. Is it wasn't because he wasn't powerful enough? Is it, was, it, was it because Paul didn't have enough faith in God? Well, not at all. Was it because God isn't actually good? Well, it's because God reminds him, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is perfected in your weakness. Now think about this. Paul was the man. Right? He's a super apostle. He has done incredible things. And, and when you read his biography, when you read the Gospels, it almost sounds like he stepped right out of a Greek mythology. Like these things don't even seem possible. And we might imagine how Paul might get to the place where he would start to believe some of those amazing things that people are saying about him. You know, after all, he was a Pharisee. He's kind of prone to a little bit of self-righteousness. You know, he, he would love to think highly of himself, and yet God's power is most evidence not in Paul's strength, but it was most visible in Paul's weakness. See, God is gracious, and his grace was sufficient for Paul. And we cannot experience the fullness of the power of God when we're strong on our own, but only as God allows Paul to go through what he does in our desperation as we cry out to God. And remember that although we are weak, that God is more than strong enough for us. See, in times of hardship and questioning, we often look around at other people who experience the same things, and, and we wonder, how is it they don't, they don't seem to wrestle with those same doubts and questions that we do? You know, how is it that they seem to hold steadfast in every circumstance? Are they just stronger Christians? Do they just have a natural immunity from doubts? Again, the truth is that many of us have just learned to hide things from each other. Hiding our pain, hiding our doubt, and we think that we can actually hide those things from God. But the truth is that God knows what's going on inside of us, doesn't he? And his desire is that we would bring our pain and bring our doubts and bring our desperation to him. So the worst thing that we can do when we're experiencing difficulty and, and hardship in life is to try to bottle it up and pretend like it's not happening. Now, I'm, I'm like that naturally. Hey, just, just spit on it, rub some dirt in it, get up and go, right? But you can't do that when you broke your leg or broke your ankle as it happened with our softball team this week. We can't just walk around and not let anyone else see how wounded and broken and desperate we really are. Because God already knows, right? God already sees, and there's nothing better for our soul than when we cry out to God in our anguish. And when we do that, we acknowledge that we aren't strong, but maybe he is. See, after all that David accuses 
God of at the beginning, after all his questions, he closes his psalm by saying this, that I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with us. And here at the end, it's important to see that David is is saying that how he has trusted God. That's a, a perfect tense, which means that it already happened in the past. Like his trust in God is complete. His trust is full. But that his heart shall rejoice. Now that's imperfect. Talking about something that's going to happen in the future. See, I trusted God before. And I am going to praise him later. I am going. I will sing joyfully to God. The the rejoicing and the singing, they haven't happened yet. But they're going to happen later. See, he's looking ahead to what God has promised, that God is and always will be good. In the midst of his hardship, despite all the doubts in the face of all evidence to the contrary, when it would have been easy to throw in the towel or to curse God and die, as, as Job's wife told him to do, David places his trust in God's steadfast love. He rejoices in God's salvation. This isn't just a, a cathartic exhale, but this is a life-giving Reminder of the sufficiency and the goodness of God's grace for him. And the fullness of the goodness of God was revealed finally and fully for us and for all the world to see in the person of Jesus. Colossians 1 says that for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven by making peace by the blood of his cross. And Hebrews 12 actually tells us, invites us, that when life is at its worst, the only place that we can look is right to Jesus. The author writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder of And perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, why why look to Jesus? Why cry out to Jesus? Well, it's because Jesus was not immune from the difficulties of life. Because Jesus was not immune even to doubting the plan of God. Remember in the garden as Jesus cries out to his father, Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And Jesus wasn't afraid to ask God the hard questions. Remember on the cross as he calls out, Father, why have you forsaken me? And yet Jesus endured and he did it for us. See, Jesus sees through the smoke screen of our plastic smiles. Jesus hears the groanings of our hearts when we don't have the words to say. Jesus sees our weakness. Jesus knows our pain. And Jesus provided all that we need. For in Jesus, we find all of the goodness of God. And so Jesus actually invites us to run to him and not away from him with our accusations and questions and doubts. See, don't turn on Jesus, but turn towards him. Seek out his face, especially when life is hard. And that doesn't mean that we always get an answer or even that we'll get the answer that we like. 
But when life is hard and when doubts come, there's nowhere else to go. See, Jesus said, in the world you're going to have trouble. But he also added, take heart, I have, perfect tense, this already happened, overcome the world. Not I will do it, but I have completed this already. See, there will be things in our lives that push us not to the end of our limits, but right over the edge. And when we come to the end of ourselves, we find ourselves right here at the table. At the table of the king and the gentle arms of our good shepherd. The only place that we could ever want to be. See, David says life is hard and doubts will come. And when they do, cry out to God. Because he loves us and he is good. And only he can save us. So all those who have placed their trust in this Jesus, who know that they cannot come to God in their own strength, but who in their desperation have cried out for deliverance, are invited to come to the table and to find him here today. Why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we know that, that life is, is difficult. And perhaps no one lived a more difficult life than you. Lord, who was scorned, who rejected, who suffered for nothing wrong that you had done, all because of your great love for us. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for those times when we are afraid to come to you. Lord, will we turn to other things to find the answers of life? God, when we can't even express our disappointment or frustration with you because, because we're afraid. Lord, you're not afraid of our questions. You're not afraid of our accusations. And you're certainly not afraid of us. We pray that now that you would open our hearts to receive you. Lord, to experience your goodness in a new way this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.